So I'd measure him, and then he'd follow up with, am I tall enough to go on this right now? You see, Jack couldn't wait to be 54 inches tall so that he could go on a real roller coaster. You know, the ones with the corkscrews and backflips. So when that day came, my wife and I planned a trip to Knott's Berry Farm. As soon as we arrived, I looked at Jack and said, hey, are you ready to get in line? Nervously, he looked back at me and said, Dad, can we go on some warm-up rides first? And so we headed over to Camp Snoopy, and we rode rides there for about three hours, and Jack was still building up the courage to go on the big one, Silver Bullet. So we went and got lunch, and about an hour later, Jack comes up to me and asks, Dad, can we get in line now? So we walk over to Silver Bullet, and we begin getting in line. And as we're waiting in line, I'm sharing with him how this is my favorite ride and how he's going to have so much fun. And as we're working our way up to the top, the, the talking and questions come to a halt as Jack gets closer and he's timidly staring at this roller coaster. And finally, it's our turn to get on and we sit down and buckle up and Jack starts telling me he doesn't want to go on. I look at him and I say, Jack, it's okay to be scared. You're gonna have so much fun. I see made Jack make a choice inside his mind. He chooses to trust me and he lets me know by giving me a simple nod. As the train takes off, we begin to ascend, and we go up, up, up. The whole time, Jack is white-knuckled, ghost-white, and silent. And then, we drop. All I can hear next to me from that point on is screaming, but I can't tell if it's of pure joy or extreme terror. And so we go through the corkscrews and the backflips and finally the ride comes to a halt and I hear Jack yell, Dad, that was so awesome! And then he begins talking about a million words per minute as he's sharing about how this is his favorite ride ever and how this part was so fun. And as we're exiting the ride and going down the stairs, he finally pauses and he goes, Dad, can we do it again? We went on Silver Bullet five times that afternoon. And because of Jack's trust in me, he built up something huge inside of himself. Confidence. In this next part of Acts, we witnessed the disciples go through a similar situation. You see, Jack trusted me, his father, that he would be totally safe. And as a result, he gained confidence during a time of uncertainty. We witnessed the disciples, guys like Peter and Paul and Philip, choose to trust their heavenly father. They had to wrestle with their hesitations and fears, yet they chose to trust. And out of this trusting relationship, they stepped out in confidence, confident that God will be with them, confident that God will work through them, confident amidst uncertainty. And as a result, radical things happened. The gospel went out in ways that they hadn't even imagined. God used them to transform lives. And this confidence became contagious. They knew that God would work, they witnessed his power, and they testified to it. I think Christians today need to grow in the same type of confidence. We've stopped trusting that God will be with us and that God will use us to do radical things. Our culture has made us so aware of what we say and do might offend someone that we have stopped living out the gospel with our words and our actions. We would rather be polite than proclaim truth. We have become timid and even paralyzed instead of bold and faithful. 
The disciples went through this in Acts when they were bringing the gospel out to the world and they had to break these cultural norms. And what drove them forward is the same thing that should drive us forward. Confidence in the gospel. You see, life won't always be put together, but we can trust that God will be with us through all the twists and turns and corkscrews and backflips that this world has to offer. My question for you is, do you have that sort of confidence in your faith? For those of you who are new with us, uh, we are in the midst of a study through the New Testament book of Acts, and we finished the first seven chapters, which have been filled with power and amazement. If you really want to understand the book of Acts and what's at work, you really have to remember Acts 1.8, where Jesus, before he ascended, he said this word to his disciples. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even as the remotest parts of the earth, where Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, says, you are to be my witnesses. This is your one job, to be a reflection of my glory, of my power, of the truth of the gospel. This is you to the endest, to the farthest regions of the world. This is your job. And just in case you're worried, that's too big of a job. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. You're going to have the very Spirit of God at work in your life to empower you to accomplish this goal. Throughout the first seven chapters, we watched that power come. When the Holy Spirit came in this, in this deafening sound and then this pillar of fire, the presence of God enters into this room and then explodes into 120 equal pieces, slowly descending on the heads of every disciple there. There's a very clear message there's no superstars in the people of God. Everyone is equally powered. Everyone is equally called to be a witness and a messenger of the gospel of Christ. Well, after that happens, the church grew by the thousands. There were people healed. Families restored. Cultures changed. And even in the midst of run-ins with religious leaders, the church continued to grow, continued to flourish to where people from other cities and other regions were coming into Jerusalem for the very purpose of witnessing and hearing about the power of God at work. But then chapter seven, something happens that changes everything. Philip, he wasn't, a, or Stephen, he wasn't a disciple. He wasn't one of the 12 apostles. He was just a leader in the church who people recognize as gifted. And because of his testimony in Christ, he was brutally murdered and he was stoned by the religious leaders. And suddenly, we think maybe there's concern. Maybe there's question. 
Maybe this church movement isn't as powerful as we thought. The first six chapters, nothing could prevail against it. The first six chapters of Acts, we can have confidence. The gates of hell won't even prevail against this church. But now, when pillars of the church are publicly killed, perhaps that changes everything. The death of Stephen was a turning point for the church of God back then. It's a turning point for the book of Acts. And it ought to be a turning point for us. The first seven chapters of Acts encompasses a period of months, but the next 11 chapters encompasses a period of decades where the kingdom of God continues to move. The next 11 chapters are here to help us gain confidence and purpose in who we are. I'm excited to enter into this next section of Acts with you. If you have your Bibles, you join me in the book of Acts, fifth book of the New Testament, Acts chapter 8. While you're turning there, I want to um, remind you we have our new sermon guides. They were on the table as you entered in. But as our tradition on your first, on the first Sunday of a time where we have uh, new sermon guides for those of you who just missed it or are changing your mind right now. If you want a sermon guide, you can raise your hand. They come in three different formats. If you want the printed old fashioned style spiral bound, our office works hard to have copies so each and every one of you can have a copy. These study guides not only have a place for your notes on Sunday, but they also have questions that you can engage throughout the week in your small group, with your friends at work, with your children at home. And then Pastor Jeff also includes activities to continue to engage your heart to deepen your walk with Jesus. If you'd like one of these and you haven't gotten one, just raise your hand. Kyle, good looking usher leader right here in the middle. Just raise your hand loud and proud. There's no judgment on the first date. Darren. Oh, again, I, my bad. Good witness for you, my friend. Take it, yes, yes, you're welcome. No judgment unless you're an elder um, or an elder wife. Um, raise your hand if you want one. But if you're like, Brian, I don't need something else to carry. There's two digital formats so you can get the study guide. One, you can just go on the webpage, cvcchurch.org. You can download the entire PDF that's available for you. Or if you're like, Brian, that, that, that sounds like a lot of work as well. Just download the Chino Valley Community Church app from your app store down at the bottom section, you'll see a sermons tab each week. You'll have the sermon outline, you'll get those questions given to you, and you can follow along with the sermon guide that way as well. Three formats, but here's our hope. Our hope is that you'll use one of them to only help you keep track of what God is teaching you throughout the book of Acts. But we really believe to be a Christian, to grow in the image of Christ, involves more than an hour on Sunday. It really, uh, you need to engage your heart with the Lord Monday through Saturday. And so these study guides, they're, they're just a tool to help you do that. Now that we got through all that business, let's get into our study. Remember chapter eight, we just finished with the stoning of Stephen by rocks. Um, I was reminded last week that I need to clarify that when we say Stephen was stoned, stoned by rocks. Uh, we need to clarify that. And here's, see, the rest of you are super pure. This one person, I just think you need to, 
Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. Right after the stoning of Stephen, it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Verse 3, big biblical but right there. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering the house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Let me hit pause for a minute because I just want to make sure that you notice three important aspects of what chapter eight is beginning. Remember, it's this new phase, the church, the first seven chapters, nothing could stand in its way. It just seemed to be growing and growing by the thousands. And even, if, even with some little abuse of the leaders, the church continued to move, but this is different. All of a sudden, after Stephen's death, the text says there's a great persecution. A phrase, great persecution. Great persecution is quite graphic. There was a massive movement of oppression, an all-encompassing hunt placed over all Christians, an unbelievable chase that began to occur of everyone who claimed to be following Christ. And look down to chapter 3, it says Paul began ravaging the church. That term ravage involves bodily injury, its intent is to demolish or devastate. I mean, all of a sudden, this great persecution, this all-encompassing hunt of everyone who claims Christ began. And look what it, how it began. It says, on that day, on the very day that Stephen was killed, this happened. There was no slow ramp up. There wasn't any warning. It was all of a sudden something exploded in their culture. And there's this war. There's this battle. As a result, again, verse 1 tells us, and they were scattered throughout the region. That term scattered, it's used for seed, not, not how... We tend to plant seed where one seed in a hole at a time. They would just scatter it. Non-uniform. Just people going everywhere. The people were scattered throughout the region. Everyone but the disciples. The apostles. You notice that? They ran once before. Not this time. But everyone else, when culture exploded... Out they went. Once was a close group, right? They gathered daily together, worshiping God, encouraging one another, studying his word together. I mean, this church was, this group was so unified that people were selling all of their property and giving it to the church to make sure that everyone had what they needed. There wasn't competition. There wasn't jealousy. There was one focus. We're going to be a witness. And we're going to form this movement of God, and it's going to take over the world. And everybody was all in, together, unified. And then Stephen gets killed. And after we read verse 3, we begin to think, maybe that's it. 
I mean, how can a young movement that had so much success in the first couple months, how can it withstand this? Their unity's gone. Their safety is gone. They're being hunted down like animals by the religious leaders. If you don't know the story of Acts, you go into it thinking, well, they had a good run. Maybe when Jesus said the gates of hell won't prevail, maybe he was just speaking in hyperbole. Maybe he was exaggerating. But then we get to verse 4. After we read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8, we get to verse 4, and there's another great word there, therefore. Therefore, I don't have a catchy phrase like biblical but, it's just therefore. My grandfather would always say, though, that when you see that word therefore, you need to look forward a couple, or look back a couple verses and see what that word therefore is there for. A term, therefore, means consequently, as a result of what happened previously, because of this persecution, because of this persecution where we begin to think, well, that's it. How can these people survive amidst a kooky culture? It's impossible. Look what happened. Verse 4, therefore, because of what happened, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Those who went about Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. A term, that phrase, preaching the word, it means to announce the good news of Jesus. If you look at the Greek, it means to announce joy with joyfulness. Picture that. All of a sudden in a culture, culture explodes. The culture is out to get these Christians. You'd think if there was anyone who would go through the world complaining, it would be them. If there's anyone going through their daily life whining about the government and defending their freedoms, it would be this group. But not them. They didn't go through whining, complaining, rioting, calling for change. They went about doing their job. Preaching the word. Proclaiming joyfully the good news, the joy that comes when we have this recognition and relationship with God. That's what I want to share with you. In the midst of their kooky culture, these Christians continued their one focus to be a witness. It's what they were called for and empowered for. Tertullian, Tertullian, an early Christian leader, once wrote this about persecuted Christians. He said this, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. Every single drop of our blood springs up in some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Man, there is this confidence in the early church. Kooky culture, what you got? God's for us. If God's for us, who can be against us? We're empowered at the very breath of God to do one thing. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of great joy, which is intended for all people. And they went about it. Let me show you the first thing that happens 
the result of their confidence. We start seeing in verse 5, what it says, first thing we see is rejoicing in Samaria. They go about just preaching. Remember, these are all Christians. Verse 5, first word says Philip. Well, who's Philip? Philip was one of those seven men who were chosen from amongst the church to be a leader, to be a servant, to care for the weak and the needy within this growing movement. Something important for us to remember is that even back in the early church, when their movement grow, grew, who was left out? The widows, the needy. Even that church went, man, as we're growing in size, we got to make sure that we're taking care of those who are often jettisoned and left out. Philip was one of those guys, and look what happened. Philip's just one example of the thousands who were scattered about preaching the word. Philip, he went down to a city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Again, Samaria, who's that? It's a city. It's a city of people who were considered unclean and despised by God. They were people who were mixed with Gentile blood. Remember back in the Old Testament, the northern kingdom of Israel was captured by the Assyrians because of Israel's sin. The way the Assyrians did it is they forced you to intermarry. Intermarry with the Assyrians so you'd begin new families and new traditions as a way for them to continue to build their movement. As a result, they were deemed unclean and cut off from God. So these Samaritans, these Jews who were mixed with Gentile blood and defiled because of it, they weren't allowed in the temple. They weren't allowed a relation with God. So what'd they do? They started their own church. They built their own temple, established their own priests, had their own traditions. If the Jews wouldn't let Samaritans into their temple, well, guess what? Samaritans wouldn't allow Jews into their temple. And there was this movement. Jews would, would walk miles around town because they didn't even want to walk through town. I want you to remember, remember Acts 1.8? Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the innermost parts of the world. People who were previously cut off, Jesus said. People that you previously considered were against God. Guess what? The power of the gospel is going to unify them together. So Philip, as he scattered about, says, well, now's no better time than any. And look what happens. He went into the city of Samaria, which was a big deal, and began proclaiming Christ to them, just teaching who Jesus was. The crowds with one accord were given attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. Many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. Look at verse 8. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Much rejoicing. In the midst of a kooky culture and great persecution, there was incredible gladness, immense celebration, amazing excitement. 
You got to know when these people align themselves to Christ, they need to know, they must have known that they were entering into the fray. I just find this fascinating. In the midst of this kooky culture that caused Christians to scatter, not only did they not hide, they proclaimed the gospel to people previously cut off. God unifies them together and they're having huge parties in the streets. Does that happen anywhere but God? It's important for us to recognize, though, that even in this great movement, there is still a commitment of God to unity of his movement and purity to his movement. Philip, in the midst of this kooky culture and time of persecution, goes into Samaria, a place that you're not supposed to go to, that they considered were, were cut off from God. They weren't even allowed in the temple. Philip goes there, preaches the gospel. People are accepting it. There's dancing in the streets. Let's keep reading verse 9. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Man, when people actually came face to face with the real power of God. Suddenly, the power of man paled in comparison. And who wants that? We can have the power of God. Keep reading verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they, they sent them Peter and John. I mean, even Christians were amazed. Oh my gosh, I think Jesus meant it. We're still supposed to go everywhere. Peter and John, verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16. For he had not, the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Yeah, pause there. You ever read that and wonder, What? How come the Holy Spirit didn't come earlier? That's weird. How come Peter and John had to go down there and pray that the Holy Spirit would come? Here's why. Let me remind you. Remember the Jews and Samaritans. They're like the Hatfields and the McCoys. You remember that? Same family, bitter enemies. Samarian, Samaritans had their own temple, worship system, priesthood. Jews had their own temple, priesthood. Had, had Philip just gone in there and preached the gospel and they got saved and, and they accept and they received the Holy Spirit, what do you think would happen? You'd have this, the work of God over there and the work of God over there. There wouldn't be any unity in the midst of it. It would kind of feel like what we experience here in Southern California, isn't it? There's 15 churches in our 10-mile radius, evangelical Christian churches. We're still, I've been working for two years. We're trying to build, bring the church of God together. 
See, in the early church, Peter and John, by God's direction, they went down and unified the church. Make sure that everyone understands this is the one work of God. This is one Lord, one spirit, one baptism, one hope, one calling. In fact, that's what Peter wrote to the church of Ephesus. Decades later, he said, listen, there's one body. There's one spirit. Just as you were also called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. The reason Peter and John had to go into Samaria is to make sure everyone understood there was one movement of God. There's not a Jewish movement and a Samaritan movement. There's not a United States of America movement and African movement. There's not a Hungarian movement and a South America movement. It is one movement of God. At the very beginning of the early church, why was the Holy Spirit, why did they have to wait so Peter and John could go and make sure that everyone understood. No, 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 we're not doing this individually. We're doing this together. Let's keep going. It's not only unity, but purity. Verse 17, they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered him money. Hey, hey, let me do this. Give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Hey, I want to be a part of that. This is cool. This is unifying. This is powerful. This is a great thing. I'll give you money. Let me do it. Verse 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Verse 22, therefore repent of all this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Look at Simon's response. I love this. Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourself so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. See, in the midst of this movement, this evangelical movement that's sweeping a town, there was still this commitment to unity and purity. This wasn't some evangelistic crusade where people walked down onto the field and then everyone leaves as they were. This is a movement of discipleship. This is a movement of purity. There's a movement to make sure the gospel of Christ is supposed to change not just your behaviors, but your heart. From the very get-go, Peter makes sure, listen, this is a work of God. But let's make no mistake, there needs to be heart and life change. And that's what was going on in Samaria. This is not some popularity movement. This is a powerful work. And again, I want to remind you, all this happened during the darkest time of those Christians' lives. There's a great persecution, a massive oppression where people were being ravaged, beaten, arrested, some even killed. It was all of a sudden, immediate, an explosion that happened. No one was prepared for this. And as people went, they had this confidence though. Hey, if God's for us, who cares? 
They just kept going, preaching the word. And in the midst of this horrible time, people celebrated. There was joy, not just in their proclamation. There's joy in their reception. And I got to ask you, if God did this back then, do you think it's possible that he can still do it today? I keep hearing people say, oh, this is the darkest time. Kooky culture, these are crazy days. Pales in comparison to this. If God can do it then, why not now? Read a blogger recently who asked this question. She said, I wonder... If we quit trying to change the world and focused on God saving it, what would happen? If we quit trying to save the world, or if we quit trying to change the world, and just focused on the power of God to save it, what would happen? Now you might be thinking, oh, Brian, that's just one time. It's Philip, he's a superstar. Like, how do you know? How do you know this is something that God loves to do, wants to do, not only back then, but still in our lives today? Well, here's the thing. See, what God did in Philip and Samaria, what God did in bringing rejoicing to Samaria, God did it again. But this time to Africa. Let's keep reading. Acts chapter 8, verse 25 so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem. And they were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. They just kept preaching, going back to Jerusalem. Man, God's at work. Forget it. We're going home. We're not leaving. We're not quitting. We're going back. Big biblical but right there, verse 26. But... An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, just when you think everyone's going to go back, retire into their comfy ministry, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up, go south, opposite way, to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Luke wants to make sure it's not some cushy vacation. It's a desert road. Verse 27, so he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go, join his chariot. Love this. Philip ran up, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? Essentially, verse 31, no. If any of you are reading the Bible, you're like, pfft. I don't get it. You're not alone. This guy's reading the prophet Isaiah. Philip comes up. You understand it? Ethiopian eunuch says, well, how could I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shear is silent so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. 
The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Like, what's that about? Of himself or of someone else? Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, began from this, uh, opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 37, just for those of you who want to geek out, it was probably added by some well-intended scribe later in church history. It's not found in the early manuscripts, but in a way to protect baptism. Hey, not everyone should be baptized. They added this. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart that, yeah, if you believe in Jesus, sure, you can be baptized. Make sure everyone understands the Ethiopian eunuch believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him right there. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him. But way on his way, went on his way rejoicing. A few things I want to make sure you understand in this. First of all, eunuch, there's a little bit of dis discussion who the eunuch is. The term eunuch can mean two things in the Greek. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that term eunuch is used to describe high-ranking official. But it also means someone who is castrated, either by their choice or because they're in service to a high-ranking official. Most people believe that that's what happened to this eunuch. Because he was a high-ranking official and partner to the queen, in order to make sure and ensure her purity, he was castrated. But whether it was his choice or someone else's choice, here's the thing, the Old Testament law, you had no relationship with God. You're out of the temple. It didn't mean he couldn't love God. It couldn't mean that he couldn't pursue God. It just simply meant that he was cut off from that from that community. So imagine Philip's surprise. He goes right after talking to the Samaritans. They repent, unify their lives with Christ. Jesus says, okay, go talk to that eunuch. What? Really? Comes up to this eunuch, eunuch seeking God. Hungry for God. Philip shares the gospel, helps him understand who Jesus is. This guy, this eunuch, believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, baptizes him, and look at the result again. In the midst of this kooky culture, again, don't forget this. In the midst of this kooky culture, this Ethiopian eunuch is there in the middle of nowhere. He's like in Barstow rejoicing. He's like in Blythe. Yay. <laughs> Again, just to remind you, rejoicing, gladness, celebration, excitement, finally. This is a man who controls the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia. What brings him joy and celebration? Unity with God. i going to ask you, what would happen, you think, 
if Christians around the globe stop trying to change the world and focus on the power of God to save the world, what would happen? In the darkest time in this young church's life, suddenly the world explodes into war and everyone is hunting them down. Bodily injury, arrest, death. And Luke tells us they go through and they still continue their job of joyfully proclaiming the joy of the gospel. And people's response is joy. Is a celebration, and you might think, okay, well, now is Philip done? I mean, now does he get to walk away into blissful retirement? I mean, God used him amazing ways twice. Surely Philip's done. Look at verse 40. God snatches him away, right? He doesn't even get to enjoy the hug afterwards. God snatches him away. Verse 40, just when we think that Philip is like snatched into heaven like, like Elijah. Nope. Philip found himself in Azotus, some other town. And so Philip gets back to work. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. And for the next 11 chapters, we know nothing about Philip. <laughs> what Luke wants us to understand is Luke just keeps doing, going the same way, doing the same thing, town to town, preaching the gospel. I want to make sure you understand this is, this isn't some unique experience that God only did in Philip. It's in that context of all of those who had been scattered went out preaching the word. I mean, God did this everywhere. The Ethiopian eunuch. Tradition tells us that he was the first one to bring the gospel to the continent of Africa. This man. Brian, what, what, what can one person sharing their life in the midst of hardship do? That's the thing. We don't always know. So easy to make this passage about the great persecution, about Saul, how he ravages Christians. But to do so leads us to missing the point of chapter 8. Chapter 8 is not about the persecution of Christians. It's not about the kooky culture it's not about sinful people. It's about the power of God at work among Christians in the midst of that cookie culture. My hope in this second section of Acts is that we might, we might gain some of their confidence, some of their purpose, Despite the madness of the world, maybe God's still at work. And maybe he wants to use you. 
Here's my question for you. In the midst of your hardship, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your fear, in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your kooky culture, who is one person that you need to quit complaining about and quit complaining to and simply open their eyes to the good news of great joy that came here as an intended for all people. It's not just a message for us. It was a message Peter had to give the early church in the midst of their persecution. Look what he said, 1 Peter 2. Peter had to continue to remind the early Christians in the midst of their broken and kooky culture. He said, listen, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. I know you feel like culture is against you. I know people tell you that you're delusional. I know people tell you that they don't want to hear what you have to say. Peter says, remember who you are. You're a chosen, chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're a people of God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's remember Man, salvation isn't just saving us from a life doomed in sin. But it's restoring us in relationship with God, empowering us with his spirit so we can be a reflection of his glory and an instrument of his power. That's what Peter's saying too. Remember who you are so you can be a reflection of his glory. He says, look, once you weren't a people. Used to be Samaritans eunuchs, Gentiles, idolaters, gossipers, liars. But that was before you received mercy. Now you have. Man, message in Acts is you will receive power so you can be witnesses proclaiming the gospel of Christ to the ends of the globe. I know some of you are in the midst of horrific family stuff, medical concerns, cultural and political worries. I was reading an article recently that says the number one worry of grandparents is the world that their grandkids are going to grow up in. I know that stuff's happening. I guess my encouragement and my prayer is that God would fill us with the confidence and boldness that he gave those early Christians. Even when you feel like the world is against you, if God's for you, why does it matter? One person, church. One person. You can quit complaining too. And start witnessing too. Let's pray. Uh, fathers of church, again, we're here grateful. God, we're grateful for your word that allows us to, to see not just your call, but your plan and how you've done it before.
God, in hopes that we would have confidence and faith and trust in you. God, that even though what we see before us has twists and turns, corkscrews, God, help us remember you didn't give us a spirit of fear. God, you gave us the power of God and the truth of the gospel. So God, we ask, God, I ask for us. May you give us boldness, confidence in your plan. God, protect us from being distracted by the struggles of this world, by the sudden challenges of life and help us to refocus our minds not just on who we are because of your salvation but God who you desire us to be and those who live around us God our, our requests and desires God that you'd use us this little place God not just unify us more together revive our hearts even more but God, may you use us to not just influence and transform the Chino Valley in your image, but God, the entire globe. Because God, that's how you asked us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth, just as it is in heaven. God, forgive us our failures. Forgive us for our fears, our weaknesses, our struggles, our rebellious choices. And God, we know that you're calling us to forgive those who have wronged us. God, give us strength to take those steps. God, deliver us from evil. God, protect us from doing something stupid that would jeopardize your movement and our families and our testimonies for you. And God, give us faith that we would remember that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.